we're back, or more specifically, you're back, uh, to another episode of Absy Connects Podcast Pause. In this episode, I got to sit down with James Stotch, who's the director of the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. And he took us back about 12 years to share a story of researching, system mapping, and communicating with community members about possibly building an advanced post-secondary education system in northern Canada. So the group that he was with at the time noticed that there was a gap here. There wasn't any opportunities for advanced education in this area, and a lot of young students would have to travel south for many years to be able to gain this high-level education um, to then be able to go back to their communities and work there. So they realized that this was missing and decided to dig into why. So that's the short overview of the story James will be sharing on this episode. Well, hello and welcome to James. Uh, thank you for joining me today and recording this episode. It's my pleasure, Elise. Great to join you. Good, good. On this very windy Calgary day. <laughs> <laughs> so to get started, we'll just jump into it um, and I'll just have you introduce yourself, who you are and what you do. So I'm James Stotch and I'm the director of the Institute for Community Prosperity at uh, MRU in Calgary. Uh, and so I've been um, at MRU since about late 2013. And we focus on co-curricular and community-focused um, learning programs and uh, programs that connect students to um, the broader community, but also to social change initiatives, uh, change making broadly. Mm -hmm. um, we also do a little bit of applied research, but we only do it uh, if it's open access and co-led by a community partner. Very cool. And I know from experience, having worked with the Institute a little bit, um, that you guys always do amazing work and very important work too in our community. So the story that you're going to share today about social innovation is a group that you were part of stewarding and pushing forward that kind of quote unquote went south. Um, and so I'll just have you jump into that. What is that story? What were you trying to do and how did that turn out? Yeah, so this goes back um, about 12 or 13 years ago, um, long before I was in academia, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And at the time, I was working with a private family foundation um, that focused a lot of its philanthropy on um, northern Canada, community building and nation building in northern Canada. So it was a blend of helping animate um, learning and, and projects that would um, uh, fulfill some of the uh, spirit and intent of the modern treaties, the modern comprehensive land claim and self-government agreements in the north. Uh, as well as trying to elevate or amplify the Northern voice in broader policy discussions, whether those were with the federal government or uh, even in the international arena uh, with regard to circumpolar affairs, um, Canadian sovereignty, uh, international uh, issues, and so on. And we also, at the time, um, uh, were quite interested in, in supporting the emergence of young leadership. Um, there was a whole generation going back to kind of the counterculture movement, late 60s, early 70s, um, of people who, who were young activists back then, but then went on to be premiers and, and regional chiefs and, and 
um, university presidents and all kinds of uh, leadership roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about this generation? What about um, you know millennials and and how what kind of mark would they make? Um, and how do they develop the same kinds of opportunities for um, active citizenship and 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 social change leadership? Mm-hmm. And so one of the responses to that was we created a a fellowship, two-year fellowship program that connected young, um, early career Northerners, Indigenous and non, to public policy training and public policy influence opportunities. Connected with that at the same time was a growing recognition among young Northerners that um, they faced a systemic inequity in access to advanced learning or advanced post-secondary education. Uh, what exists in the North, uh, at least at the time, um, was a series of community or technical colleges, no universities, very few university partnered programs, a lot of research activity that was led um, and directed by the South, Southern mm-hmm. researchers, but not Northern led. And yet, when you look around the circumpolar world, every other country uh, that has an Arctic presence has mm-hmm. universities in the North. Uh, that includes Russia, which has many uh, north of 60 or north of the Arctic Circle even. University of Tromso in Norway is a, is a pretty sophisticated institution. University of Alaska has three campuses, in fact. Even uh, the University of Greenland, a very small institution, but uh, nonetheless a, a, an advanced post-secondary option for, for young people. So this was interesting because young people were saying, you know, why do we have to go south mm-hmm. or why do we have to... Uh, if we want to ever have a hope of being in a leadership position, whether it's in the private sector, the public sector, even in the nonprofit sector, we have to leave the North for many years, right. uh, especially if we pursue a graduate degree. So that happened. And, and um, we said, you know, why don't we at least, we have the power to convene. Why don't we bring people together in a conversation? And also, why don't we commission a bit of research to actually dig into this issue and expose this as a systemic challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, We even did a mapping project where we created a circumpolar map of universities around the circumpolar world with the notable giant gap of Canada. The the most northerly university in Canada at the time was the University of uh, Northern BC, uh, which is roughly the same parallel, maybe a little bit north of University of Alberta. And beyond that, um, you know, you only have colleges and 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 uh, and certain technical institutes, which are important and part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But if somebody wants to, um, for instance, become a um, a land use planner or a, um, a resource economist or a senior public administrator or a mining company executive mm-hmm. or uh, any any you know. T- a wilderness um, wilderness ecology specialist, or take your pick of, of many, many different vocations yeah. that not only are viable in the North, but connect directly to asserting uh, Indigenous sovereignty and nationhood mm-hmm. um, and, and as part of nation building. You know, all of those opportunities, you need to go to a Southern university and then kind of hobble together something that you think might be adaptable to the North, but certainly not made in the North. So we did, we did that, commissioned that, had a gathering, and um, 
and 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 started to build the case. But the project ran into some some rocky waters, uh, and that's mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to kind of share with you today. Yeah, it's just when you're. This is a case of you know it seemed like we didn't use the word social innovation at the time, um, but right. we you know it seemed like yeah this is this is certainly nation building. It sort of looks like social innovation. Mm-hmm. We brought people together, Indigenous and non, and and this included Inuit, Dene, Yukon First Nations, Métis, and there was a very broad shared vision articulated about what a what a great um, Northern advanced post-secondary ecosystem could look like that could be connected mm-hmm. and part of one system potentially, but with enough diversity to make sense for Inuit in the Eastern Arctic and, and Dene in the Central Arctic and, and, and mm-hmm. Yukon First Nations in the West, as well as non-Indigenous um, people. And it was a, uh, so a vision was articulated, um, a, sh- a shared vision that you know, amazingly was a pan-Northern thing, which is a really hard thing to do because the North is such a diverse place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it struck people that it wouldn't be viable if you pushed for, you know, three completely separate institutions. Um, that it, it made more sense. You could pitch it um, if it was a kind of um, uh, federated model, if you like, right. kind of like University of Alaska, but much more appropriate to the northern context in Canada. So all that, you know, it was very kumbaya. It, mm-hmm. it all seemed to be going, heading in the right direction. We had lots of people. We had a, you know, a Rhodes Scholar involved who was a northerner. We had a Fulbright Scholar. We had, yeah. um, you know, we had people who who knew the university system well, knew the politics well. And so mm-hmm. we were quite confident. Um, but what we failed to do were two things. Inadequ- we inadequately involved the territorial governments mm-hmm. um, who it wasn't quite clear whether they actually did have jurisdiction or not because provinces constitutionally have jurisdiction over post-secondary education, but the territories are not provinces. Um, so there was a big debate. Well, who's actually responsible? Right. Is anyone responsible? Does this explain why we don't have any universities in the North? Yeah, that's part of it. There were two cases in Canadian history of federally chartered universities, Queen's and Royal Military College. Um, But those date back to, you know, a century and a half or more ago. So there really wasn't a precedent. Mm -hmm. So the territory governments was one issue. Mm -hmm. And the second issue was we did, we inadequately involved and inadequately consulted the existing colleges that were north of 60. Mm. Um, one of those colleges has since gone on to actually convert itself to a university. That's Yukon College. Um, and at the time, they were clearly, you know, pretty sophisticated um, as, 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 as colleges go. They were, um, you know, more than just a community college. They were actually already quite a decentralized, uh, multi-campus entity starting to introduce degree programs as well. So... It was clear that the Yukon version would likely not be some new institution, but would be some future permutation of Yukon College, less clear in the other two territories. Um, So that was one area where, you know, the colleges felt inadequately included um, and and, and weren't weren't terribly pleased. Mm -hmm. 
And then um, holding together a broad, diverse coalition like that takes way more time, effort, and resources than we ever budgeted or ever thought would happen. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a kind of tacit assumption, well, this will be such a compelling idea, the grassroots will just take it over. But what we didn't realize was in, in sort of looking at this after the fact, how much of this was our idea? How much of it was truly grassroots? Mm. I, I think in the end, it was like, it was somewhere in the middle, right? People said on the ground, no, this is a great idea. Some were hugely passionate about it. But the vast majority of people we talked to, even in the North, were a bit blasé about the idea. Hmm. They would be like, ah, eh, yeah, this has tried before, but, you know, good luck with that. Right. Didn't really work or didn't turn into anything. Or they'd come up with a bunch of reasons why it wouldn't work, right? One of the biggest ones was, well, the high school dropout rate is, is, is huge. Why are you focusing on an exotic university experience and the cost that that would entail when we're, we can't even get students to graduate? Mm. Now, interestingly, there's a response to that, right. but I don't think they ever believed the response. The response is, well, why would you graduate if there's nothing at the other end? Right. If there's no like, what's the incentive if you realistically have discounted the possibility of going to post-secondary? Sure. Um, and we, we saw that actually there's a historical precedent in Canada in northern British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, when the UNBC opened and there were fierce critics of UNBC, they thought what a what a kind of exotic thing to do to open up a new liberal arts university in. In a you know, a, a forestry dependent um, interior BC community just seemed weird and exotic. And there were a lot of naysayers. Um, and that is, that has completely transformed Prince George. Anyone who lives there would, would agree. Um, the university has been transformative and, and has in a sense saved Prince George um, or been a big part of saving an economy that was struggling, right? A forest-based economy can't support a city of that size. And what they saw was the high school graduation rates increased markedly after the university opened. Students could see themselves going there. Hmm. It was way too abstract to imagine themselves going to SFU or UBC. But they could, you know, they could get their head around going to this campus that they see every day. And that, that has happened throughout Canadian history, and there's really strong research and literature on that. If it's both cognitive and geographic proximity will have a huge effect on increasing post-secondary enrollment. So we thought we had a response to that, and yet mm-hmm. it remained too abstract, and the, the support just wasn't, wasn't there. So it's a real reflection on like how much how much change can an external change agent really drive before it becomes inauthentic? It, you know, is it just a good idea in our heads or is it a, you know, we thought we were on solid ground and we did have support, but clearly not enough to, to have that convert into authentic, spontaneous grassroots momentum to, to sort of see things through um, the, the full way. So it's, it's a really interesting reflection on, yeah. on the role of outside change agents and, and 
when pushing something is pushing too hard. Mm-hmm. You already answered my next question of what stood out to you about the experience. <laughs> yeah. That was that was just it right there. <laughs> yeah, and and just you know you can you can start to it, it's it's also an interesting tension that's always held between you know if you if you take any entrepreneurship courses, um, you hear advice like you know don't let people tell you you're crazy, stick with it because it's an idea whose time may have come, but it's going to take a lot to even get early adopters, right? So from an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, the advice would be, no, 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 stick to your guns. Keep on it. You know, keep building the case. Keep making the argument. Um, Do what you need to do. Don't back Mm -hmm. down. But there would be a whole other world of, you know, people who would be more concerned about community dynamics, issues of, equity and inclusion, who would say, well, who are you as an outside change agent to say what this region needs or doesn't need? Um, yeah. And, you know, if you don't live there, if you if you haven't lived, if you don't have lived experience, who are you to say what people need mm-hmm. um, or what regions need? Um, mm-hmm. You know, even if it has the veneer of empowerment or, or nation building, so says you still, right? Yeah. So that's an interesting tension that I think a lot of people in a lot of social innovation pursuits have faced and will face. On the one hand, being entrepreneurial, sticking with the crazy idea against all naysayers. But, but on the other hand, weighing that with, well, how much agency and authenticity do you actually have to, to, to be pushing that idea? It's a, it's a really interesting conundrum. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting. About 10 years later, there was a mining company, um, Canadian mining company that was working in Nunavut. And, you know, and they'd been working on the ground quite a bit. And and again, you know, um, meeting tons of people and wanting to also have a social license to operate, but also to have a very active legacy component to their corporate social responsibility Mm. and gold mining company. And they were... um, and so they hit upon this idea kind of independently that, geez, a Northern university, that makes sense. And that in their case, it was an Inuit-specific university they were pushing mm-hmm. for. I can't tell you where that went, but I haven't heard anything about it in a number of years. And it, again, it was like this brief pulse of momentum. And I'm, I'm going to guess that, that a similar kind of dynamic was at play where mm-hmm. you have Yes, you have outside philanthropy, whether it's corporate or private or whatever, but you have external money and external change agent um, with an idea. Mm-hmm. But is, you know, to what extent does that idea land on the ground for people? And yeah. and maybe it's just simply that, you know, communities are are not there. They're, they're at a different place where they're saying, you know, look, you know, the North, for example, has... Um, a real challenge around male suicides, especially in, mm-hmm. in uh, Nunavut. You know, they'll look at those issues and say, like, these are our priority issues. Nice mm-hmm. that you want to help build us a university, but but we'll also have to raise money and where, you know, where are we going to take that from? And, right. you know, so I, I don't know if that's what happened, but it's one of those cases where, yeah, you know, seems like a great idea on paper, but... Um, not the best in practice or no. maybe not not the right time to, to move it into practice. And it may even be a, a soft form of imperialism. 
well, well intentioned. Yeah. But, but also, um, but also fraught, right? Because it is an idea that's imported ultimately from Europe. If it's going to be a university that has the kind of credibility and bona fides of other universities in the South, well, then by definition, it's going to be colonial. You know, it's going to have policies, whether relating to tenure and promotion or disciplinary mm-hmm. boundaries or um, the the imperative, imperative to publish and so on and anything else that's part of the DNA of a university. Yeah. Well, in order to be taken seriously, that's what it'll do. The, New Zealand actually had a an experiment where they um, they created a whole series of um, decentralized community learning centers called wanangas that they conceived of as universities in a Maori sense. Mm-hmm. But the Western university system didn't want to recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they had dueling post-secondary systems, a complete duality of post-secondary, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And we looked at that. That was part of part of our grounded research mm-hmm. was to say, well, maybe we could, you know, borrow some aspects of the New Zealand model. Um, but you know, th- there again, you run into this problem of, okay, well, if it's if it's a if it's a model that cu- is culturally resonant, mm-hmm. um, that's different than saying oh, we just need a university in the north, right? Which which has a kind of colonial aspect to it, right? right? So there's all kinds of really interesting things you can dive into when you, when you mm-hmm. dig into the tension of this issue. Yeah. Well, it's a system in and of itself, right? Like all of those pieces, that's all part of the, part of the picture, part of the system. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Man, the more and more I hear about New Zealand, I'm like, I just want to live in New Zealand now. <laughs> I'm hearing all these amazing things come from New Zealand. <laughs> Yeah, New Zealand is a place of innovation, I think, in many ways. It's social innovation. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I'll pose you one last question before I know our, our time is coming to a close, which is if you could go back in time and talk to yourself or the group of folks who were creating this movement to get a university set up in the North, what would you tell yourself? What words of wisdom or encouragement or advice would, would you give yourself? Be much more patient. Um, build build an ecosystem of information but don't lead the charge around the idea mm-hmm. so um, you know I think you know everything from the, the background research and the maps we produced and the this, this storytelling I think some of that was useful some of it was less useful but don't don't lead and, and the other piece of advice would be always question whether an intervention that made sense for another time in another context is the same kind of thing that that is needed mm-hmm. so one of the one of the cases that we were building is to say well let's actually look in history at canadian history to see is there an association between universities mm-hmm. and um regional economic development or uh, a, a kind of nation building broadly from a Canadian perspective, not from a Northern perspective. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's a really strong association. Mm-hmm. The creation of the University of Toronto in what was then York mm-hmm. in Upper Canada was very explicitly done to assert 
British sovereignty or be part of a program asserting British sovereignty in an area that was potentially to be contested as um, a colony that might join the 13 colonies and become part of the United States, right? So um, that was very explicitly done as part of a program of sovereignty. Then you see when every province joined confederation, within a year or two, a university was founded in the capital city. That is true of University of Manitoba. That is true of University of Alberta. That is true of Memorial in Newfoundland and so on. Mm -hmm. And so this was a pattern. But, but with the territories, we just didn't bother doing that and stopped doing that. And so what to me was an interesting story of making the case to the federal government to say, well, geez, you kept doing this. Each time there was a new piece of confederation, you actually built in, in a strategy to have a right. post-secondary fueling regional economic development. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a great argument, I, we thought, for the feds. Turns out it was not a great argument for the North because the North, some Northerners would push back and go, well, wait a minute, that's not, that's not, this isn't about Canada serving its, you know, asserting its nationhood and its sovereignty. It's about us mm -hmm. developing our own communities and nations in the way we, we want and, and in a way that's going to be culturally resonant. So yeah. that argument actually wasn't as powerful as we, or as seductive as we thought it was. In fact, it was almost undermining um, the persuasiveness of it with some Northerners because they'd be mm -hmm. like, hmm, well, maybe we don't want this because it does seem to be associated with colonialism yeah. more than anyone thought. Um, so, yeah, so it's that's another kind of nuanced learning is provide learnings, but do not lead the charge. Yeah, it's a powerful one. I always get so many, like, words of wisdom and insight whenever I have conversations with you, James. And today was definitely, definitely fulfilled that <laughs> role. <again. laughs> so, yeah, I just want to say thank you for graciously sharing your story of how things went, uh, went a little bit south as you phrase it as the rocky waters, which I like the way that you phrase that, <laughs> that things hit some rocky waters. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing your story and providing so many learning insights as well. Oh, my pleasure, Elise. Yeah, no, and it's great to just have the opportunity to reflect on on that story. I think there's a lot of rich learnings to to unpack. Yeah. And I don't, would I do it again? Like, would I reverse? No, I think, I think on balance, like, mm -hmm. I think there's, there's also a role for um, provocation and seeding new ideas and um, being counter-cultural. Counter mm -hmm. And also mobilizing evidence, you know, it's all, there's all a role for it. It's just in how is it sequenced? Who's involved? Mm -hmm. In what order? To what end? Who's leading the charge? Those kinds of questions yeah. are then become important after that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Wow. Just incredible. Thank you again so much. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of Pause. Um, as always, I'd love to know what you thought of the episode, so please let me know on your favorite listening platform, share a review, give us a rating, um, and share with your friends if, if you think they'd be interested in hearing a bit more about social innovation, what that world is. It's kind of an ambiguous one to try and explain, so <laughs> it's always easier with an example, that's for sure. And in the spirit of reconciliation, I'd like to acknowledge that the places we 
live in, work from, record podcasts from, are situated on lands that were until relatively recently cared for exclusively by Indigenous people. We acknowledge the past, present and future generations of First Nations, Métis and Inuit who have traditionally gathered in and cared for our land. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest on this show who has a sizzle or fizzle or a combination of the two story of um, social innovation, please let us know. We'd love to have you. I hope you all have a fabulous rest of your day, afternoon, evening, weekend, wherever you're at listening to this episode. Have a good one.